This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and, of course, Rental Street. If you need any accessories for your street motorcycle, then don't forget to check out rental.com where you'll find everything you need. Sprockets, bars, levers, whatever. Go and have a look. The, the, the brand is fantastic. They have everything that you need, not just for your off-road motorcycle, but also for your street bike, as we mentioned. We're gathered in this very uh, homely flat, I would describe it, Dave, right in the center of Valencia, um, right after the Grand Prix, in fact. It's Monday. Uh, we're trying to recover energy and some force for the test. Well, actually, not Neil and I, because we're going home today. But no, there's only one person uh-huh. who's actually going to the test, and that's me. You are manning the fort in the media center. I was there today, so I can get a little bit of credit. Yeah, no, fair enough. I'll go half points, half points, a bit like my O2. Uh, my name's Adam Wheeler. Of course, I write for OnTrackOffRoad.com, Telegraph, uh, a few other bits and pieces here and there. I'm delighted to be joined by Mr. David Emmett. Dave, uh, thanks for not only being here and contributing to the Paddock Pass podcast note show over the weekend. You and I were the only 100% loyal, dedicated, <laughs> consistent uh, performers in this regard. And we hope our Patreon listeners love the material because we endeavor to bring all the notes, the views and the opinions, the facts, news, whatever, Every day, right after the race, and um, thanks for the moral support, Neil. You, you, you know, your half presence was very appreciated. And of course, Mr. Neil Morrison, um, writer extraordinaire, a man of many trades. Uh, you know, great to have you guys on the podcast again. The last one, guys. You know, it feels like. Uh, who was I speaking to the other day? I think it was um, Red Bull KTM team manager Francesco Guidotti, who said it felt like yesterday that the guys were only racing in Qatar. I was thinking it's slightly, it's slightly longer, or it feels longer than yesterday. It does feel slightly longer than yesterday. It feels more like sort of uh, uh, two or three geological ages since we were racing in Qatar. Yeah, the, the Qatar Grand Prix that opened the season, it's almost like it was 2021, actually. It's, uh, it's been a stretch. Neil, you've done more races than Dave and I. How, how are you coping? Uh, yeah, I'm coping, Ed, but just about. Um, I'm pretty... I feel like the well's a little a little dry. Um, I was trying to finish up some work this morning, and you know when you just lack a little bit of a little spark, a little bit of inspiration. But I think um, going home tonight and missing the test tomorrow will be of great benefit to me. So um, I know you're looking down at your nose at me, Dave, for that. Um, but yeah, no, I'm feeling okay. I'd, yeah, quite excited actually thinking about um, a bit of, a bit of free time, some holidays coming up. I was at the track today on Monday and I was quite impressed by everybody's, how they seem quite refreshed and, and ready to go and motivated for the next challenge. Uh, Jack Miller and Paul Spargaro were hanging around sort of the Rebel KTM setup, uh, the energy station there. Uh, the paddock, of, of course, is partly broken down because the Moto2 and Moto3 teams have headed home, but there's still like a full day's work. But we'll talk about that in a moment because we're getting ahead of ourselves. The championship's decided. The decider has been decided. Uh, Pecco Bagnaia, first world champion, as we've mentioned, since 2009 for Italy. Uh, the first Italian on an Italian motorcycle in the premier class for half a century, Dave. Uh, it was not unexpected what happened in the race, but... In terms of entertainment value, before we get to our moments of the weekend, wow! I mean, you know, it was uh, it was pretty frantic. 
Uh, the, the whole weekend was exciting. I mean, like it was a really good weekend. Also, just because uh, you know the, the Peko was obviously suffering from nerves, and so was having a really rough time of it uh, getting through free practice. Uh, uh, then uh, qualifying, Fabio getting on the second row, not quite making the first row. Um, it, it had all the makings of an upset, which always adds that little bit of egg, uh, edge to, to, to the end. Also, we had the same sort of thing in Moto Two with um, uh, Augusto Fernandez and um, uh, Ayogura, I think Ogura was on the second row as well, so he was you know in with a shot. Could have been, it could have been there. So um, yeah, I mean there, there was real tension, and the uh, and the race itself was uh, proved to be uh, quite entertaining. You know there was there was sort of some uh, dry patches in the middle while the situation developed, but uh, you know there, a lot a lot went on. Really, a lot of things happened. No, one of your moments of the weekend was actually those first crazy minutes of the MotoGP race. 27 laps, decent sunshine, great attendance, great crowd as well. Yeah, 92,000 people there yesterday, which is, uh, I think, one of the biggest attendances of the year. Um, and I think, although it was always going to be super unlikely, I don't think we could really say with certainty that Pekka was the, the champion until maybe five or six laps to go. Because, you know, Fabio was catching up that lead group for the majority of the mid-race period and there was a I mean it was always going to be super unlikely but um, it wasn't really set in stone until about five or six laps from the end of the championship so I think that's a pretty good result all things considered probably further than we expected Fabio to get this weekend um, and yeah if we're talking about our moments of the weekend it has to be the I think the second lap when the two guys fighting for the championship actually came together on track there was contact uh, Banyaya lost his uh, front winglet on the right hand side of his bike um, after he snuck under Fabio at turn two, who'd been pushed wide by Jack Miller. And then I think for the rest of that lap, they absolutely went at it. Fabio passed him. I rewatched the first couple of laps again last night as I was writing a report. And he repassed him, I think, three times, lunged, proper lunged. And, um, you know, Pecco managed to hold the line each time and get back through. And at that point, I was thinking, like, it's a matter of time until Fabio, like, throws it at the scenery because he's just on the ragged, ragged edge. But to be fair to him, he, um, he kind of maintained his, uh, because it looked like all was lost then, but he sort of maintained his composure or regained his composure past Banyaya and then set off after the, the, uh, the lead group. So, um, yeah, you do wonder, had it not been for that, um, that little spell with the Ducatis getting beat up by them, um, whether he could have actually maybe won the race, but he said yesterday that he didn't think that was possible, um, even without Ducati's kind of intervention. But uh, yeah, it was great. The two guys, that's what you want to see, isn't it? And the championship decided the two guys going for the title, scrapping like mad on track. So yeah, that was a pretty cool highlight. Pekka Bangnaya said that the moment his front right side pod evaporated or flung into the air and Brad Binder immediately had to duck to avoid it bouncing off his helmet uh, the race was a nightmare and he was riding defensively from that point onwards um, Fabio Quattararo Dave in his debrief told us you know he was uh, actually much more calm for the race whereas he was much more nervous for qualifying because he knew that if he blew it if he blew that fast lap attempt which he had been on the ragged edge you know, all through Friday and Saturday morning trying to achieve, then his Grand Prix was scuppered. But uh, it was a decent enough attempt by the Frenchman just to shame, you know, his front tyre on the left side of it certainly um, wore quicker than he was expecting. Maybe that was to do, to do with the higher track temperatures. Yeah, I mean, th th this is a continuing problem that uh, Michelin have to set the tyre allocation before the first Grand Prix. Uh, and I was chatting to someone from Michelin on uh, on Sunday night and, and they said, uh, imagine having to select which clothes you're going to take and wear at, uh, uh, at Valencia back in March. 
shorts, t-shirt and a hat, surely. Well, yes, but I mean, we've also been here where you would have died of hypothermia had you only been uh, wearing shorts, t-shirt and a hat. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it's difficult. They did because of previous experience. Uh, they and also because this was quite early, they bought a slightly harder compound on the front. But even then, there were much higher temperatures than, than we expected. You know, it's like 26 degrees or something. Uh, air temperature and track temperatures were if I remember correctly, something like 10, uh, 10 degrees higher than last year, which is uh, a lot. And so people were just basically running out of, uh, out of front tire. And Fabio said, even after the, the contacts, you know, he was asked, did that, the fact that you lost touch with the, with, with the front group at the start, did that mean, was that what cost you the race? He said, no, it didn't make any difference. The front tire wasn't going to be able to, wasn't going to let me win. I couldn't do, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to, uh, catch them and stay ahead anyway. So yeah. It was a, it, it, and it was tough for everyone. We saw a lot of people with with, uh, with tire problems. Uh, race was seven seconds slower than than in uh, previous years, which tells you, you know, that it was that much more difficult. Yep, that's what I wanted to say. I think it was yeah, seven eight seconds slower than last year's race when the three Ducatis were up front. But I think you could attribute that to the uh, the track temperature. I mean, global warming, whatever, just a freak uh, moment of good luck. I think next year. And Valencia's scheduled to be around November, the end of November. 26, 6th. something like that. It's, it's yeah. basically the last weekend in November. That will be a case where I think Michelin's conservatism of tyre choice will probably be a little bit more secure, I would have thought. I mean, on the fringe of December, that really is pushing right the barrier between all, uh, autumn and, and the winter. So it's... Uh, we'll just scrap the morning sessions. It'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sprint race and uh, through through maybe some snowy conditions. But uh, Dave, your, your moment of the weekend was a little bit more somber. Uh, yes, I mean, really, uh, Aleish Espargaro pulling in, I think, after about three laps, um, summed up his season, really. The, you know, couldn't, couldn't have, or summed up certainly everything since the flyaways. Uh, just everything went wrong. Uh, he came in with a technical problem. Uh, afterwards, we asked him, do you know what was wrong with the engine? And he said, I don't know, don't care, don't want to know, just don't want to ever happen again. <laughs> the body uh, language. Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, he was not, uh, he was not very, the most uh, invigorated of bunnies. Um, the problem, well, I mean, like trying to interpret the, 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 the uh, press release, it sounds like it was suffering from fuel starvation, which is, you know, it, it's easy to do, but that's exactly the kind of thing that a mechanic makes a small mistake, which means the fuel isn't flying properly. And so there's not enough fuel going there. And especially once you open the gas and, uh, and try to give it full gas, uh, it, it, it wouldn't respond. We'll talk a bit, a little bit about Aprilia later in the podcast. But um, for my moment of the weekend, I, I have to go through the Guevara move on the last corner. I mean, sort of turn fourteen in, in Valencia, we know has been sort of home to some memorable moments. I think you know, Neil, you're going to correct me here now. Two thousand and twelve Moto three title decider. I think it was 13. Luis Salom. Thirteen, yeah. Maverick Mignales, Luis Salam, Alex Rins, all three could win the championship. All three went into the last corner, drag race to the finish. I mean, it doesn't get much closer than that. Yeah, it was Folger and not Salam. Okay. Almost. Okay. Yeah, well, there you but, go. But this is why I rely on you, see. That's why I need you. <laughs> For my faulty memory is that everything gets uh, on and on as, as the age pushes up. But uh, anyway, going back to Guevara's move. Um, yeah, we saw Dennis Onchu quite distraught in Park Ferme, understandably because he wanted to win his last Grand Prix before shifting sideways from Rebel KTM Tech 3 to Rebel KTM IO next year. But um, I was so focused on watching what Guevara was doing when he took that wide line, was obviously teeing up the run to the finish line. I didn't notice that Onchu had actually made a bit of a mistake and gone wide. Um, that's where he was. That's why he was so disappointed because he reckoned he messed it up. 
I mean, the, 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 the finish, but the gap between both of them was minuscule at the line. So perhaps that was the difference. Yeah, but I mean, it was absolutely picture perfect by Gafari. It was absolutely perfect. It's exactly how uh, you attack in that last corner. You uh, Because the, the, the person in front of you has to defend, they're always going to end up going a little bit wide and so you can afford to take a, a different line. And also sitting behind because there are sort of two lines through there. Um, and if you, you can watch what the rider in front of you is doing and if you know that you've got the drive, if you know that you've got the acceleration, you can sort of you know pull out and, and, and just pass so it was it was just just perfect it was just done to, to perfection so yeah hats off to him outstanding yeah great from Gravara like brilliant uh, way to approach the final turn but another occasion where Dennis Andrews in a winning position on the final lap and he doesn't just nail it like he had to there's been a couple of occasions now um, Aragon last year seems to stand out um, also we had Jerez this year where I think he was leading with about four corners to go and ends up finishing fourth Jerez last year where he was leading the majority of the race and uh, ended up taking Jamma Masio at the final turn um, you do wonder whether like he's just he's overthinking it he wants it so much and the fact that Keenan Sofoglu is manager Toprak Chan is all the brother all in attendance you wonder, you wonder whether that was just a little bit of extra pressure that he's putting on himself that um, is kind of preventing him from just sealing the deal um, because it's been there's been several times now where, where Dennis has come so so close even this year um, to winning and he's not quite been able to do enough obviously brilliant from Guevara Guevara riding like a champion full of confidence at home, home track I think he's won at every Spanish race we've had this year now which is which is saying something but again I'm left with the feeling that Andre just couldn't quite get it completely right when he's ahead on the final lap Maybe he was slightly intimidated by looking at Chan. I mean, he's seen, looking at his older brother, thinking, "Well, you know, you, uh, you know, you won here on your first Grand Prix attempts in the rain. Pressure's on. Can I do it?" Didn't manage it. So um, I hope Chan didn't wind him up too much afterwards. But I, I mean, I must say, I I'm not sure that having Keenan Software Glue as manager is the uh, uh, the most calming and relaxing experience. It's probably an intense way to live and train, it's isn't it? Probably quite intense. Just looking at the the whole group of them actually watching the race on TV, it was um, you know it was pretty. Uh, you could see that the, the tension was there. It's probably like the the kind of journalistic equivalent of having Adam Wheeler as your editor. <laughs> yes, there we go. Nailed him one there now. Actually, guys, I wanted to ask about this because um, Pedro Acosta won in Moto Two, and I can't escape the feeling that KTM have probably two of the brightest prospects in the whole Grand Prix paddock in Guevara and also Acosta, two riders who have yet to reach, you know, their 19th birthday. Or is Acosta actually coming? No, 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 he's still 18 this year. So, I mean, Acosta finished the year as Rookie of the Year in Moto2, won three Grand Prix. Um, the way those two seem to ride, their technique, the bravado, the confidence, it's, um, dare I say, it's Marquez-esque. I, I really do don't see anybody else at the same kind of level of control or, or ability or the way to affect a race. I mean, Pedro Costa won the championship in his fir in his first year. Fair enough on a Moto3 bike. He's used to it. He knows what a Moto3 bike is like. Bike is like. He just has to learn tracks and uh, learn to deal with the pressure of the uh, the Grand Prix environment. That is a very very big ask, but still, it's not insurmountable. Moving up to Moto2 and then winning at the in your first year that 
to me is always a big deal because the step from Moto3 to Moto2 is absolutely massive. It's much, much bigger. I think Acosta was very unlucky this year with injuries. Uh, was it, Broken I think it was, femur. Yeah, running motocross, right? Yeah. Um, he was unlucky with that. that. That really set him back a long time. Uh, so yeah, I, I, and if he can adapt from Moto three to Moto two that quickly, he's going to adapt really easily from from Moto two to to Moto GP, and he's going to be a great Moto GP rider. How long does he wait now? I mean, he's going to have another year, year in Moto two. I mean, you, correct, one year. I mean, one unless year. there's a disaster and he has an injury again, which which ruins a potential championship bid, no. then. But not going to make any difference. I mean, sure, he can hang around in Moto2 and hope that he wins a championship. He'd be wasting his time. He's better off doing one more year in Moto2 and going straight to MotoGP. And, he, you know, he's not going to have to uh, sit around begging and hoping. Um, his attitude is really good as well. I saw that. I think at, at Aragon, I saw that. He was um, uh, sitting in his pits, joking with his mechanics, sitting on his bike, playing around with that sort of thing. That, to me, is someone who is really, really focused on uh, on the bike, really, really focused on the uh, on the team, on racing, on everything. It's, it's exactly what Mark Marquez does, is what Brad Binder does. Uh, he's, he's he's being a leader in his team, and that's that's really important. And I, 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 I yeah, I mean, like, if it's me, I'm pretty much sort of after uh, this, if I'm a MotoGP team manager, I'm phoning. Is, um, I'm phoning uh, after the test, this test, this MotoGP test. I'm phoning uh, Pedro Acosta's manager and saying, uh, "About uh, 2024. Uh, what do you reckon?" Well, he finished fifth in the championship, and KTM have a problem. Um, also, Augusto Fernandez has a problem. Uh, I don't quite Oscar know. Oscar Bargro has a problem. Yeah, well, Paul's got a two-year deal, so in theory. Unless there is some way that he could be ejected from Gas Gas, or maybe there's, KTM. There's always a way you can eject people from from uh, uh, from from teams. Uh, uh, contracts are great and everything, but they there are always escape clauses. There's always way, uh, ways of going of, of getting out of them, uh, and especially if Paul, I don't know what his performance clauses will be, um, but one way of dealing with that sort of thing is by putting very high le- uh, very high standards or you know requirements in uh, in performance clauses speaking, uh, speaking of contracts Dave um, I wasn't at the Alessia Spargaro debrief but did anybody have the balls to ask him if he'd missed the, the half a million euros he probably missed out on for being top three in the championship I wasn't there either but no, no, nobody asked him but I think everyone had pity on him I mean he sounded you know I was transcribing it and he sounded um, he sounded as down as I think I've ever heard it. He did sort of like saying, you know, like missing out on third cha- uh, in the championship because he felt like it, uh, he had the speed just to, to easily get third. And Bastianini didn't have a fantastic race exactly. So third was absolutely on the cars for him. If they hadn't had this, I mean, it's just basically, a me- you know, it, it, it's uh, the an error of uh, the mechanics putting the thing together, uh, uh, causing this fuel starvation. Speaking of Pedro Costa, we've got him for a rental street session coming up as well. So look out for that in the next couple of shows that we're going to do. How are we going to put subtitles on a, on an audio recording now? How, we, how is Pedro's English now? Is good. It, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Heavily accented, but then that's, that's you know, for part of the part course. Part of the course. Yes, yes. Good. He says finally a lot. <laughs> like too much. Let's but, see. Yeah, yeah. And Alex Rins, let's see. But at least see, there's or... no let, let's see or no positive or negative. So I think right, You've got to forgive good. the old cliche or two, certainly. And we're all guilty of it in our native language, never mind trying to do it in the second language. So, um, but yeah, of course, there are, of course, like we were saying, um, rapid fire question to you both before we move on to a, a far first talking point of the podcast. 
Bastianini third in the championship. Did, did, does he deserve that or is it should have been Espargaro's yes, spot? Yes, he does. I think he does. He won more risks than Espargaro. He was the faster rider over a year. He was in a satellite team on a year-old bike. Okay, that bike was fantastic and well-sorted, but that's still an achievement in itself. Um, he was the guy that consistently, when Banyaya was at his fastest and at his peak, he was the guy that was consistently taking it to him and being even faster than him. And uh, yeah, for having just the temerity to not uh, take Ducati's wishes into regard, even though he's going to their factory team um, at Sepang, at Mizano, at Aragon. Uh, yeah, he deserves he deserves a championship for that, in my view. But yeah, he was. Uh, I think he was the the third fastest rider this year. Uh, yeah, what Neil said. <laughs> but you say temerity. Is it temerity, or perhaps just um, not a very strategic way to think? Nope, it's a hundred. It is a hundred percent. Listen, next year I'm going to be your teammate. Uh, or sorry, next year you are going to be my teammate, and you are going to have to um, uh, look after me. It's it, it, it's it's the only thing that matters. Here. Look, there's no team. There is no. There, there has to be one. some slight subservience to the reigning. A hundred percent, not no. That, that as soon as you do that, if you've lost, you might as well not bother turning up. Do you think you will think I need to learn something from Bagnaya? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. I mean, like they. I mean, he's been learning from everyone. He's probably been learning from Marco Bezzecchi's. But I mean, that's that's the point. You you learn from everyone. However, you uh, the first thing in your mind is I'm going to beat you, and I'm going to beat you, and I'm going to show you that I'm better than you. Now, let's talk about Pekka Bagnaya, the world champion. Uh, I know you've got sort of a thought on your mind that I, I think it's fair to say quite a few people, certainly in the first part of the season, were sharing. Well, yeah, it was just a question to open up for a bit of discussion. Um, whether Banyai is a, uh, a deserving champion, is a fitting champion for this year, because uh, I think it's the first time that a rider with more than three DNFs has uh, won the Premier Class World Championship in, what, 74 years? Five DNFs overall for no, Banyai? I think Mark had four one year. Okay. Four DNFs. That's the, the top, the top non-scores. Right. Okay. Um, but yeah. No, so there's uh, there's inconsistency there. We've talked about this several times on the the pod uh, this year. Um, you know, he had a, a pretty rubbish first half of the year overall, but um, a pretty stellar second half of the year. Um, and uh, yeah, he didn't exactly win the championship yesterday in the most convincing of fashions, coming home in ninth position um, after looking nervy and not really riding to his full potential. The Ducati guys, Davide Torazzi was saying last night. He could have been on the podium easily if he had approached it like a normal weekend, but it was almost as if his um, his method of approaching it was just, let's not make any mistakes. And that was the, at the forefront of his mind. It was like, let's not repeat what we did at Sepang where I crashed at two critical moments on Saturday and made the whole thing more stressful than it needed to be. He was trying to take a, a delicate approach. Um, David, it's about Tardotsi probably um, uh, contributing a great deal to the amount of stress <laughs> that uh, Pekka Banyai was under because uh, the, the entire, the, the whole atmosphere in that Ducati garage was, I mean, like it looked worse at Sepang, but it was still a proper powder keg. You could tell there was a lot of stress there, a lot of pressure. Exactly. Just had to look at his uh, his heart monitor and uh, the number of BPMs he was doing compared to Mayo Marigali in the Yamaha corner. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's obviously some, uh, I have some contrasting emotions there, here. Like I think if you take away Joanne Mayer's 2020 championship, he is the lowest points total of any champion in MotoGP um, on average per 
Rears, um since uh, the current point scoring system was introduced in 1993. I think, it's thir- I think it was 13.25. 13. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Mira was if, 12. If you take the second half of the championship, um, it's 19, which is exactly what you expect. And uh, what was his points total? 272, I think. Or I mean, it's very, very low. It's you know, like normally. Your normally championship totals are at least 300 and this was just absolutely nowhere near it. it that statistics always relative to the strength of the competition, isn't it? And also going by virtue of the fact that the top six, top ten, the, the six top ten finishes, closest finishes in GP history have all happened in the last 18 months indicates that it's harder to win than ever. So we have to expect a degree of, you know, we're not going to get a Marquez 19 season again for a long time, I think. Yeah, I think like well, Matt Oxley did a good blog on this after Malaysia. It is more difficult to be consistent in MotoGP now than it's ever been. Um, and obviously, the, the strength of condition of um, competition that you just mentioned that is uh, is a big factor of that. Also, the the number of uh, like or the, the number of bikes that are now within ten seconds at the the checkered flag is is kind of more frequent than it's ever been. I think we've had three of the closest top tens in history this season alone. Um, so you have to take that into account. Um, you know, I don't think before we've had what every manufacturer has been on the podium this year. Every manufacturer has won bar Honda, um, which is kind of a, quite a revelation. Um, you know, this is the most sort of open. It's been, although Ducati has been the, the kind of dominant bike, this has been the most sort of open uh, period, era, I guess you could say, in, in MotoGP history. Oh, and in the post-Rossi period as well, Dave, without Mark Marquez, I think it's really what you'd expect, isn't it? Uh, yes. I mean, it would be interesting. It's always the, the, the counterfactual of taking a really dominant rider out of a championship is really difficult to... to sort of figure out because those dominant riders completely change the dynamic of a championship um uh, so yes things will be a lot closer but the other thing is i mean like you do have to sort of you can't overstate just how close everything is just how close all of the bikes are if you think you know sure there are there are eight ducatis uh, on the grid and actually all eight of them are, per, are capable of winning races um seven per, that all eight bikes are capable of winning races. I mean, you know, like Fabio Di Antonio is clearly having what you would expect from a from a rookie season. He's just sort of struggling and and, and having. I mean, you know, Digi's rookie season looks a lot a lot like Pekka Banyaya's rookie season, sort of thing. So yeah, you, good shout. Yeah, I mean, you can you. It's exactly what you expect. Bezeki is having an exceptional rookie season. Um, that bike is fantastic. That is already eight bikes capable of winning. Uh, the Yamaha, at least in the hands of Fabio Quattraro, was capable, uh, you know, capable of winning. The Suzuki clearly capable, uh, capable of winning. Um, the Aprilia was capable of winning, you know, when, when you put everything together. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it's just genuinely a really, it's really close. Everything is really, really close. Uh, that I think it, it's really hard to overstate just how close it is. The Ducati is the new Yamaha. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it's also really easy to learn as well. The fact that the, the Fabio Di Gianantonio um, uh, got on the front row at, uh, at Mugello is, you know, I mean, yeah, sure, he was helped by by weather, but he was fast, you know, and he was been a fa- fast a few times this year. So uh, yeah, it, it's it's a bike you can you can understand and get up to speed quickly on, which you can't say of some of the other bikes. Yeah, um, but you know. If you look at it uh, in another way, we're talking about low points totals, um, and um, but you know we take into the account that it's it's more competitive now than it has been in, in other periods in Grand Prix history. 
Pecco won the most races this year. He was on pole as many as as many times as any other rider. Um, he had more front rows than anyone else. He had more podiums than anyone else. You have to say the kind of numbers and just that run in the second half of the season does kind of, I think, merit um, you know the championship. And obviously, whoever finishes on top on points is uh, is the deserving champion. But um, I know there is a feeling perhaps that uh, Fabio has been the better rider this year. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, to me, Fabio is the better rider, but clearly that second half of, of, uh, of Pecco's championship just demonstrates how good he is. You know, like he was, uh, he, the only time he was off the podium was, uh, uh was here. Uh, he had, yeah, I mean, he crashed out of Japan. He probably would have been off the, uh, 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 off of the podium there as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, just podium, podium, podium with a whole bunch of wins interspersed. That it, it just shows how strong he's been. The, the Ducati is very clearly the and easily the best bike on the grid. Uh, no do, no dispute about that. However, the Peko has also been head and shoulders above the rest of the Ducati uh, Ducati riders. I think there's best. We can argue whether Bastianini has more potential, but he it, uh, Bastianini was also making more mistakes. And the most interesting thing about the whole thing for me with Peko is uh, his crash. He, again, he, he said again in his press conference, and he said it sort of several times this year. His crash at the Saxon Ring was absolutely crucial to his championship because that was the moment where he sat down and thought, hang on, I'm doing something wrong. Um, he figured out what it was and he fixed it. That is, that's the sign of a champion. Uh, you know, that, that's the sign of, of, of someone who's really, really knows what he's doing. Yeah. And he said yesterday, I think there was maybe an hour after the race at the Saxon Ring where he thought, oh, the championship's gone. And then after that hour had passed, thought, you know what, it's still open. We still have a chance here just because... The bike was in such good shape. The potential really had been there since Portimao, I think. Um, obviously, he messed it up in France. He messed it up in uh, in um, uh, Germany, sorry, as well. Um, but uh, yes, um, like he's been, you know, the one of the guys competing for race wins pretty much everywhere since going all the way back to Hareth, which is uh, a long old stretch. Uh, the, one of the most interesting also because he talked about learning from his mistakes and he very briefly touched on the situation where he was uh, um, uh, arrested for drunk driving and had a crash and arrested for drunk driving in uh, Ibiza. Yeah, he worked out his weaknesses between the rum and cokes in the summer and <laughs> exactly. the end, actually turn it around. Yeah, exactly. A, a, a few drinks, quick drive, sort it out. Now, I mean, but he did like address it. Yes, he also, he didn't actually sort of explicitly talk about it. But he did at least sort of like a, uh, mention it, bring it up. Yes, it was a mistake. It's the sort of thing that you that you do in life, that you learn in life. Um, uh, doing it at 25 is perhaps not... Uh, um, he's leaving it a bit late to be learning that sort of lesson um, but I mean we'll have to wait and see uh, again that whole situation was just handled absolutely terribly by uh, by DK but that's a different uh, that's that's a completely different discussion but um, it does seem like he was like he's capable of he's intelligent he's capable of learning capable of growing yeah and just you know obviously we didn't see the best of Peco at Valencia but then he didn't need to be at his best because he had built up such a healthy advantage there um, you look at the uh, three races before that and in each of those races he had ridden I think like a, a complete champion like in Thailand obviously there was the rain wasn't great in the rain before that race this season um, finished third okay with Zarko's assistance but still rode a really good race uh, Phillip Island not a Ducati track but was leading the majority of it almost won it uh, and then Sepang 
Um, I thought it was quite telling that twice this weekend, Mark, when asked about Peko and whether he was a, a worthy champion, pointed to Sepang and said, like, you can't imagine how difficult it is to ride like he did in Sepang, put in that kind of performance with that kind of pressure in that situation. So, um, yeah, I think um, Valencia maybe not so much, but, um, you know, the races prior to that, you know, Peko was very much the, the, the guy to beat and the, the kind of champion to win. That's why I wanted to ask him in the press conference if he feels he's a rider that can handle pressure because I think the situations have been there repeatedly for him to drop the ball in a big way. Or, you know, for he, he seems quite a conservative character anyway. I mean, there's not a great displays of emotion, is there? Um, and, you know, I think he's he's kept this poker face all the way from, from Sepang right the way through to the end of, you know, the celebrations in Valencia where also, you know, we didn't see like a, a Nicky Hayden kind of, just explosion of, of emotion and outpouring did we it was uh, it was more of an uh, outpouring of emotion from Ducati than there was from from, uh, from Pecco I mean like Pecco he had um, uh, he was quite clearly having you know shedding a few tears after the race but um, uh, no he wasn't he, he's just not an exuberant kind of a guy well listen uh Email us, send us a message, Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter. Let us know if you think Pedro Pekka Bagnaya is a worthy champion for 2022 and we'll, we'll share some opinions. But right now, we're going to take a quick break on the Paddock Pass Podcast. We'll be right back. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders, and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit handlebar comparison tool at renthal.com to find the perfect bend. Welcome back to the second half of the Paddock Pass podcast. Dave, Suzuki, they went out in style. Uh, I mean, Alex Rins uh, won the best Grand Prix of the year by, what, a tenth of a second in Australia. Uh, it was only three tenths in Valencia, but um, a faultless performance. I mean, we're talking about Bagnaia as a champion, but Rins uh, really showed what MotoGP is going to be missing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think he was fifth on the uh, on the grid, um, got a fantastic start straight through to, uh, to the lead in turn one and just led all the way completely untouched very very mature ride very very uh, uh, considered ride um he is the highest scoring rider in the uh, last four races i think he's got 65 points to peco 64 um both afterwards both uh, joan mir and alex rins were saying i mean joan mir was saying like you can't buy this kind of publicity. You simply cannot get this. You know, we've got a, he says, we've got a beautiful bike. We've got a beautiful team. Uh, uh, I've won a world championship. Alex is winning races. Uh, you, you just cannot buy this kind of positive publicity. And yet Suzuki are pulling out. Um, it, I mean, the reasons they are pulling out is quite simple because they're not just pulling out of MotoGP, they're out of MXGP. I think they're pulling out of AMA, um, uh, motocross as well. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, they haven't been in World Superbikes for the better part of a decade. They're withdrawing the factory support from uh, EWC. I mean, they'll still be supporting the uh, one of the Suzuki, and maybe Cert, I can't remember. They'll still be providing support, but at a much lower level. It's not for direct factory involvement. Well, apart from MotoGP, Dave, I don't think there's been any real motorsport technology development for a, for a couple of years now. And it's certainly the case for off-road, where the RMZ 250 and 450 has been stagnant. In fact, I think it's one of the motorcycles on the market, I could be wrong, that doesn't even have like an electric start. I mean, it's really basic stuff. Um, you know, we just don't see many Suzukis in the gates for, for the off-road disciplines at all. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're clearly, um, because Suzuki build uh, uh, cars and motorbikes, they have, uh, I think, they just introduced a new engine in, the, uh, in, the, in their uh, road lineup, um, which is positive. It means that they, are, they will continue developing and building motorbikes, uh, but their focus is somewhere else. Uh, they don't see the value in motorsports. I think it's uh, I think it's an, I think it's a mistake, but you know I don't run a you know multi-billion-dollar company, um, which much to everyone's relief. Um, what well, what matters though? Well, yeah, but it's not quite multi-billion. Oh. Yeah, no, I mean you know close, close, but not quite. Um, but my shares have lost value. <laughs> It's the uh, it's the markets, mate. It's the markets. It's not my fault. It's uh, a bunch of bloody traders on Wall Street. Um, uh, so yeah, there there's enormous value. There's an enormous promotional value still in uh, in motorsports. I think uh, Suzuki have just decided, from what I understand from people who uh, from people on uh, on the roadside, journalists on the roadside, they there hasn't really been the uh, passion for racing. For a long time, um, they the, 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 the you know the very top level have had really no interest in motorsports. I don't think they do much in rally or any other form of uh, uh, of car sports either. But you know they are uh, they're they're shifting their focus into in cars into towards you know electric vehicles towards uh, carbon neutral vehicles and uh, perhaps they'll come back. Perhaps they'll come back uh, later. But right now, not. It also seems like a missed opportunity because MotoGP in twenty twenty will be running on 40% carbon neutral fuels uh, and in 2027 we go 100% carbon neutral so then it gets it, it, then things start to get very very interesting it depends on your view of how much of a token gesture the sustainability angle is with elite level motorsports that are not only creates uh, obviously three days or much more than that it's a week if you consider all the support structure arriving to a venue the, the presence of all the public I mean it's quite a, a CO2 bubble I imagine but you know, Suzuki do have this environmental policy, it seems, and it's um, it's made an attitude where motorsport is not the best vehicle for their promotion. Um, yeah, but I would, you, you, this is where I would disagree because I think motorsports is exactly the kind of venue where you can do that sort of thing. Uh, certainly when I went to the uh, Ducati Moto E um, presentation earlier this year, what was really interesting was um, Claudio Domenicali being very enthusiastic about, uh, first of all, MotoGP going to uh, buy sustainable fuels because um, a lot of the, uh, motorcycle manufacturers would like to be able to continue to burn hydrocarbons of, of one form or another um, 
but if we can find a way to build hydrocarbon, you know, you know, combustion engines which are burning uh, renewable fuels rather than uh, uh, fossil fuels, then that's already a, that's already a big step. He was also extremely interested in uh, in hydrogen, in using hydrogen as a, as a form of combustion. Um, obviously, electric fuels, which is what you know, electric bikes, which is why they're going into Moto E next year. Uh, so, to me, it really looks like because the thing that you learn about. Um, or when you are at the very highest level of uh, motor uh, 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 of motorsports is uh, as an engineer is combustion um because combustion is actually not very efficient, it's about 35% off the top of my head. Um, you know, every small gain that you make in terms of combustion efficiency um, has a huge knock-on effects, and everything you learn there really goes straight back into uh, straight back into production. So it seems like a wasted opportunity for Suzuki. We have to do maybe do a podcast in the winter about the the legacy of Suzuki. I mean, there was a time where you know an RG on the grid was the savior of the Premier class. I mean, it seemed to be littered with them in terms of being um, spec kind of production races for 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 half of the grid. Um, I also have to apologise to anyone from Suzuki if my data on the dirt bikes is slightly off. It's been that long since I've seen an RMZ, which is a shame. You know, there's been a rumour for well over a couple of years now in MXGP that Suzuki are working on electric technology for their dirt bikes. Um, you know, the Japanese are notoriously conservative when it comes to launching production machinery that has to be almost bulletproof. So I'm guessing they're doing a lot of R&D. If they do appear with that kind of technology, then it might not be for some time. But what's the point in developing a combustion engine? And the irony is that Suzuki were one of the very first in Grand Prix racing with um, EFI, uh, you know, with fuel injection inside the dirt bike. So they went from being one of the pioneers with that particular kind of engine tech to, you know, probably one of the most stayed. And I think that has to be a, a speculation, of course, but an internal decision to orientate their, their development somewhere else. But, I mean, talking about the racing, you know, Alex Rins, uh, it was, it was, we could debate whether Brad Binder would have launched that if he had another lap or two, but there's always the if question. But Rins, like in Australia, uh, you know, if, if your LCR, if you're Lucio checking out, you're thinking, right, okay, uh, you know, good times next year. Well, uh, certainly in terms of ability. <laughs> uh, now sure. let's let's check the Honda cynicism for a moment and assume that the Japanese will get that bike sorted out. But Rins is is riding just as well as we've seen him. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think um, the championship position might not show up, but I think this probably was Rins' best year. Twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen was obviously strong for him. Um, he won two races in twenty nineteen, but um, you know you have to. Let's imagine that Suzuki didn't pull out of the championship or didn't decide to pull out of the championship at Portimao and then announce that her rest. You know, he was leading the championship going to Portimao. As Dave just said, he was the strongest rider in the last four races. Um, there was obviously a hangover from the announcement that they were withdrawing for a couple of races, which is understandable. Um, panic. I guess, set in a little bit and he said he was unsure whether he would even have a ride uh, in 2023 and that obviously affected him. It clearly affected Joan Mir uh, worse than it affected Rins. Um, and then he was taken out in Barcelona, a race that he had a chance of scoring maybe a podium at um, and broke his wrist and then that affected his races before the summer break. But if you look at the you know, since we resumed from the summer break, he was leading the race at Silverstone, then his tires went off and um, Suzuki were kind of at a loss to explain exactly what happened there. Um, and, um, you know, I think there's grounds to say that in the second half of the season, he was 
more or less, you know, he was in the picture. There was a couple of races where he wasn't fighting at the front, but he was still scoring decent top 10 finishes. Aragon, he was going to be in the podium fight, but was obviously, um, uh, had to run off track to avoid hitting Fabio Quattararo in the first lap. Um, so yeah, I think this has been a really strong season from Rins. Um, and he has succeeded where Joan Mir has fallen, you know, short massively in that he's basically been able to kind of put all that was going on next year to one side and the kind of uncertainty within the team um, and, and focus on the job at hand. And um, I mean, I thought Philip Allen would be the send off. I couldn't imagine that he would, uh, he would be here again, um, leading a race from the first corner, um, leading every single lap and, and winning. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, it was a phenomenal performance, really. Well, he also mentioned in the press conference, Dave, that the most galling thing about, you know, the victory was that the Suzuki with the extra top speed they had this year that we saw from the preseason test straight away was probably the best version of that motorcycle we've had for a couple of years. Uh, okay, it won the World Championship with Juan Mir in a very unique season in 2020. But, uh, you know, the, the competitiveness bike was undisputed, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 where the, Suzuki's struggle is just basically keeping up with technology like aerodynamics and um, ride eye devices, that sort of thing. Uh, that, that, that's been their problem, but they've really done uh, exceptionally well. Just in terms of the pure motorcycle, if we didn't have wings and ride eye devices, I mean, you'd want to be on a Suzuki. The Suzuki would, I don't know about clean up, but the Suzuki would be an absolutely outstanding motorcycle just in terms of it combines fantastic agility. It's strong on the brakes. Um, it's got, a, it's got a strong engine. It's got lots of grip. Um, you don't hear the Suzuki riders complaining a lot about, you know, a lack of grip or whatever. Um, they, it, it's just a very, very, it's a fantastic all round motorcycle. Um, a little bit of a sensational thing to say and maybe a little stupid, but if you're Razan Rizali and, you know, the team announced a new sponsor, by the way, at Valencia, Cryptodata. And, and co-owner. Yes, a co-owner, that's right. Um, they were backers, of course, at the Red Bull Ring earlier this summer, the first time we saw this company. They are now the majority owners, I think, shareholders in the team, which is an unusual arrangement because they're not just slapping their sticker on the side of the bike. They actually are, they have negotiated with uh, Razlan and also Dorna to, you know, be uh more of a presence inside the team i guess is the way to define it but you know they're running aprilia's next year and you just wonder if the last couple of weeks the last two months they might be thinking well clearly in the first two thirds of the season in prilia you know the, the rs was the bike the emerging bike to have but now you'd wonder well could we get a couple of cut price suzuki's as well you know and chuck them in the back of the van yeah but you can't do anything with the bike with, with the bikes because the suzuki's not going to build any spares for them so basically you, you'd be fine until about race four and then uh, you'd be running around with bent wheels and bent frames and all the rest of it suzuki are, i mean they look great in black though they would look great in black uh, but you i mean you can't just run a uh, you can't just run MotoGP bikes there is it, it it's not like production bikes and like if i want to enter super world super bikes i can go down my local uh i can go down my local royal enfield dealer and get myself a nice uh, a nice himalayan and uh enter it in world super sport and um see uh, see how far i get um which would not be very far 
But the point is, all the parts are there. Everything, the rules are clear. Everything, uh, everything is is all clear. All of the parts are available to all of the teams. Um, uh, it, it's very simple. MotoGP bikes are very different. MotoGP bikes um, need to be built separately, uh, cared for separately. All the rest of it. I don't even think because the other thing is um, so because of the engine allocation we've got uh, what is it seven engines I think um, there aren't seven. Uh, physically separate engines what there are is usually three or four engines and those engines are then circulated they're just recon they're reconditioned um, uh, the most uh, you know the, the, the parts that wear stuff like bearings and all the rest of it get, uh, get replaced crankshaft pistons they'll all get replaced um, and uh, the, 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 the cases are put back together and, and it's not that these things are too complicated to be to, to be done sort of all on your own. It's um, you, you could not just like think. I know what. So I'll tell you what. I'll give you a million for those bikes and let's go uh, and let's go ride them. It does make you wonder how much input for the old Desmos at each though, Ducati. I mean, there's obvious basic maintenance there, and you know, if you're in the case of Enea Bastinini where you're doing you're making inroads in the championship battle or certainly the impact, then there may be some development. But otherwise, you know. Digia, what is how are they maintaining his Ducati? Are they just delving into the the, the stock room of spares? And, and yeah, I mean they've still got loads of spares uh, left, and also it, it's uh, it's also much cheaper to. I mean it's relatively cheap to r produce stuff which you've uh, made uh, made a thousand times. You've got all the CNC stuff sort of just lying about. Uh, it, it, it's still a very specialised uh, job. Still needs to be done. But, um, yeah, I mean, they do have one of the advantages of having eight bikes on the grid is you've got an awful lot of spares lying around, and having uh, a satellite teams on old, uh, old bikes means that you can actually use up old stock. And you, if you look carefully at those bikes, uh, some of the bits and bobs on there are looking. Uh, a little bit worse for wear. They're very clearly at the end of their mileage. Every single part on a motorcycle, uh, on a MotoGP bike, has a mileage uh, uh, attached to it. It's it's good for a specific number of uh, of miles. That includes, you know, stuff like even stuff like foot rests, swing arms, frames, all the rest of it. Um, uh, at the end of a year, a, a, a factory bike will still have. Uh, you know, they'll have a, a, a several chassis with still sort of, you know, I don't know, a thousand Ks on the uh, uh, left in terms of mileage. Uh, chuck it over to the factory, to, to the satellite teams, let them get on with it. They can then sort of like shuffle around their various chassis that they've got to get to, uh, to get the mileage out of it. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's a good way of using up old parts. Uh, obviously, there still needs to be a lot of support, but basically they're stuck with old parts and that's what they have to use. Speaking of mileage, uh, Neil, I know it's round 20 and it's been a long old season, but um, it was invigorating, I thought, to see the Grand Prix at the weekend in Valencia. Um, again, how many people there were. I believe the Dorna had raised the allocation of guest passes for each team. It felt like it really felt like it. The, the, the paddock was the busiest I've seen since 2019, really. Although I have to say, I wasn't at Mizano, so I've got no comparison. Yeah, Mizano said it was busy, but it felt like there was, I mean, there was certainly a lot of guests. Um, I would maybe say VIPs, but there were certainly a lot of, you know, faces and, and, you know, renowned names from the motorcycling world wanting around the paddock. And, I think one thing I want to ask you both about, and I know it's very a, a subjective thing, uh, but the, the extra promotion that Dorna are making, I, I, I really have to applaud their efforts because we do see things like 
the attention paid to TV graphics, the whole campaign around the decider, even though it was slightly loose because of the difference, the 23-point difference between Peco Bagnaia and Fabio Quattararo. I mean, it wasn't really a head-to-head -head thing. It wasn't even as close as we saw in Moto2. But, you know, the effort to try and engage people, to, to make them excited, to build some hype around a situation in a season, you know, I think you have to take your hat off a little bit to that. And I think we're getting, we got a little bit of a preview for what MotoGP is going to look like in the next couple of years at the Ricardo Tormo. And we saw a hero's walk, um, which is essentially like a red carpeted section at the bottom of the paddock. Um, maybe people who visited the circuit or caught it on social media or through Dawn TV channels would have seen it. Um, also, the sprint race format, of course, is something designed not only to give TV stations more material, but also the fans of the circuit more value for your buck. If you're going there for a Saturday afternoon, it's going to be, I guess, more exciting than watching perhaps Q1 and Q2, you, you would assume. Um, and I just think there's a whole kind of, there's been a little bit of a shift change in the mentality when it comes to the promoters in trying to um, build something around the sport. And um, yes, it can feel like it's over the top sometimes. And the, the, the social media posts can be hit and miss. But for the most part, I think it's, it's it seems like MetaGP is a little bit more modern. It's got a little bit more um, vibrancy about it. Well, I mean, first of all, the trouble with hype, I mean, an old cynic like myself, uh, I'm extremely allergic to hype. So when they were trying to hype the, uh, the, the decider, uh, I immediately think, oh, yeah. Uh, however, uh, yes, I mean, you know, they were doing it. They were, they, they, they did, they clearly had a plan, a promotional plan and they were following, it, which was quite good. Again, introducing the hero walk is great. I think also, um, actually being at the track, sprint races are going to be great. Um, if you're not at the track sitting at home, I think it's, zero added benefit um they are doing an awful lot to try and promote the, the the sport but it seems to be at the moment they're focusing perhaps on the wrong part they're they're, they're trying to get more people into the you know they're, they're trying to make things better for the people at the track and what they need to do is grow the popularity of the sport i think we've talked about this several times before the problem isn't uh, the people who are already at the track it's trying to get more people wanting to come to the track trying to get more people watching on tv uh, that sort of promotion that's where i think that we are we are missing at the moment yeah i think um yeah i think they, I mean, who am I to say, but yeah. Neil Morrison. Uh, Neil yeah, Morrison. Ne I mean, I know it's been a long year, but you're Neil Morrison. Neil, before we continue, I think we have to remember most of this stuff isn't aimed towards us, is it? I mean, even if we were not working there, we would be watching. You know, yeah, we'll yes, be talking exactly, about yeah. it. Yeah, the, the, this is exactly the problem. We are hardcore fans. We're going to watch whatever. Um, uh, which again, and it's always the hardcore call. I feel sorry for the hardcore fans because they're the ones who complain about format changes. Um, uh, but in fact, uh, format changes, and this is not just true for MotoGP. It's true for any sport, any activity. Uh, hardcore fans get taken for granted because uh, everyone knows they're going to watch what, almost whatever you do. You do have to be careful. There is a limit at which uh, that changes. But um, uh, yeah, hardcore hardcore fans are going to watch anyway. What we need is new fans, and that's what always annoys the hardcore fans. Yep. Um, you know, I think they need to get the Amazon series, get the, the TV crews back in and have another go. Try and do that again, because I think that's a great way to appeal to the mainstream, to people that maybe um, have a passing interest or know one or two names that exist in the championship but are looking for a way in. I think that's something that they really should be trying. Okay, the first series didn't really work. It didn't have its intended effect, but that is a fantastic medium to promote the series, to promote the characters within the series, to get people more familiar with the characters in this series. I think 
the stuff that there that you mentioned Ed, is 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 positive um as Dave said it's not necessarily going to make um the average person on the sofa like um uh, start watching the sport religiously um but i think it is uh you know if 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 you do pique someone's interest if you promised them the potential to meet one or two of these stars uh, at the circuit then that is a, that's definitely a motivator to come to the circuit whenever we were at philip island there was a kind of a cool thing where uh, basically the riders, when they were arriving at the track, they came into the middle of the track and before entering the paddock, they got out of their cars and they'd sort of like, um, they blockaded off the, the road into the paddock and all the fans had congregated around the edge and there was kind of like a red carpeted area and the, fa- the riders would get out of their cars, go up this little street or road up into the paddock and basically like, you know, spend 15, 20 minutes Taking photos, chatting to fans, that kind of thing, and that's cool. Like, I mean, if I was uh, if I was someone like that, a fan um, waiting to to get a photo taken with a ride, I'd absolutely love that. I think, yeah, that's a that's definitely a reason to get to the track for nine a.m. on a Saturday morning when otherwise you would maybe roll in at lunchtime. Um, so yeah, there's they're definitely trying lots of different things. I think you have to applaud that. You have to say it's good that they're willing to to try different things. Obviously, mixing the format up for next year, but. I agree with Dave. I think the, you really have to try and think of how to present this in a nice, watchable package on a mainstream streaming service. And that, I think, is one thing that they really need to yes, the biggest, make another attempt yeah, at. That's the strongest part of the bow, isn't it? I mean, if you don't have that, seemingly now, in the last two years, uh, we look at basketball, we look at Formula One, we look at football. I mean, football is hardly a sport that needs extra or like diverse kind of promotion because it's everywhere on a live basis. But Tell me about you still, it. <laughs> You still have, um, you know, these fantastic and behind the scenes Amazon series, uh, you know, that take the, I mean, I've watched one of Manchester City. I'm not even a City fan and it's it's quite revealing. You know, that's the kind of insight you, you want to. Shame on you. Is there one about Liverpool? It's not, is there? There's one on Arsenal, Spurs. Yeah, there's one Liverpool. Well, anyway. I wonder why they haven't picked Liverpool. They did I mean, one something seven years ago. Lack of charisma. It's cringy. Oh, right. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, it needs to happen. And I'm sure the reasons why they've frozen the Amazon project, MotoGP Unlimited, changed the name, um, you know, the, the, there has to be some kind of review of that. I mean, the, the thing is, there are so many stories in the paddock. I mean, like I end up frustrated at the every every weekend because I only manage to cover about 1% of what's going on. There is so much going on. There are so many different stories. There are so many different people. Um, there's, yeah, the, 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 there's so much that can go on that you really feel quite frustrated that they don't do more of that. Uh, it is just a way of finding a way. I mean, like all of human communication we live humans live on stories we love stories um everything is narrative you know like why are there so many conspiracy theories because people take a a group of random uh, uh random events and connect them into a story they uh, connect them into a coherent narrative and uh, you could if if you came into the paddock with an idea to tell stories not about MotoGP as such, not about the racing, um, but about the people. That I think is what's missing because there's loads and loads of characters. Yes, a lot of the language inside the inside of the paddock is uh, is not English. That can be a bit of a problem. But there's plenty of people, especially you know, like uh, there's lots of team managers who we all know who would be. Um, extremely colorful on uh, uh, on tv and would be able to fill hours and hours and hours of uh, of of, uh, of entertainment 
stories, Dave. I'm looking forward to you telling us more about how it was to live in ancient Greece from your experience there. Neil. That's Socrates. God, he couldn't have go on. Aristotle down the pub. I mean, you know, go, go, go. Neil, last Grand Prix of the year, what was your, who was your winner? Uh, my winner from the last Grand Prix of the year was uh, the man that won the Moto2 World Championship at Augusto Fernandez. Um, because, uh, yeah, there was a lot of pressure on Augusto. He was in the kind of place where uh, it was his to lose, I guess. He had a 9.5 point advantage coming into the, the final race. Um, but I have to say, I was really impressed with Augusto all weekend. I don't think he put really a foot wrong at any point. He was a bit shaky in the early laps of the race, understandably so. Half a um, point. Half a point was the difference at one yeah, moment. Exactly. Yes, for sure. Um, but I always felt that um, Aguro was overriding at that point and Augusto was just sort of biding his time because he had done so much good work through free practice that he knew he had the, the rhythm to go until the end of the race. Um, Aguro, I think, was a complete unknown um, and was possibly likely to do what he eventually did and crash out in vain trying to, to win the race um, but Augusto yeah uh, I would say if you're looking at how to, to win a championship in, in high stakes high pressured environment um, you know Augusto's weekend was, was picture perfect really and it helped that he had his teammate obviously helping him out but um, but yeah Chapeau um, I think he, he earned the title with uh, his performance throughout the weekend very quickly, did you enjoy the Moto2 season this year? Last year, we had two riders dominating things. It was like a McLaren-esque kind of season when it came to Rebel KTM Ayo, who are team and rider champion for the second year in a row. Um, but Vietti, uh, Acosta, Agura, you know, Fernandez had the most experience out of all of those guys But you know, and, and triumphed in the end. Uh, but, you know, did you, did you, I mean, was it a season that grabbed you? It was a season that grabbed me. I don't think it was um, a, a, a year when you look at the level in Moto2 and say it was the highest level we've ever seen in the class. Um, I think we spoke maybe one of the podcasts earlier in the season. Um, certainly in the first half of the year, the race times were you know, quite a bit down on last year. You know, Gardner, Fernandez, Bezecchi, Lowe's, they were racing faster than what the guys did this year. We had six first-time winners this year, which hardly points to a dominant force in the championship. But you know what? That doesn't uh, Having a dominant force in the championship doesn't always mean it's enjoyable to watch or it's entertaining. I think this year was really entertaining. It was uh, an open championship. We didn't have a massive number of fantastic races i mean you look at um sepang you look at barcelona um wasn't vintage racing right the way through the year but we had a, a really good title fight and we had a lot of variety with the guys running towards the front and um some interesting you know stories there um coming through some guys that will be in moto gp were emerging i think in the category as well so um yeah a good year but not not a year where you think like the level was fantastic but yeah a good year. My winner is actually somebody who came through Akiyayo's team, Brad Binder. Uh, I think his performance, okay, he started seventh on the grid, which was unusually high for him. Um, you know, he was using a new chassis that KTM had for him, which, you know, he gave, claimed gave him the extra drive grip he had been asking for for months. Um, reduced a little bit of the front end feel, but it didn't seem to ha hamper him in the race at all. Maybe the team had, you know, refined it just so slightly for that particular 27 lap bout we saw on Sunday. But, um, Again, we saw just what a, you know a pure racing animal Binder is. And just quickly, Dave, I mean, you mentioned on the note show that you rate him, you know, up there with yeah. the best riders in, in MotoGP. Yeah, I mean, if I had to put my top three riders of uh, um, 
in or top three most talented riders in MotoGP, it would be Mark Marquez, Fabio Quartararo, and Brad Binder. Um, all three of them on on severely compromised machines. But if you look at what they're capable of, uh, it's just absolutely. It, it's really otherworldly. Binder is just, you know, uh, we talk a lot about in MotoGP about the difficulty of, of, of overtaking, but it looks like someone has forgotten to tell Brad Binder that it's supposed to be difficult to overtake because he, he can do it. Um, that new chassis does seem to give a an advantage. Uh, it helps in turning. It's very different. It's basically uh, the part because the... Um, the KTM chassis is are these sort of steel tubes. I mean, they're sort of an oval uh, oval tube, uh, and the section around the swing arm pivot is completely different. They've messed around there. I actually happened, uh, uh, Nikki Kovac, a, um, a photographer, managed to get a little snap of uh, of the the thing sort of uncovered, and you can actually see um, it's very different. They've tacked a nice little steel plate over it to cover some of the stuff up um, but that is quite clearly just camouflage there, there, there's a lot going on there uh, that really helps with turning which is something which they were really missing and uh, it also gave them extra drive and turning plus drive um, will help you if you are uh, uh, it, it, and it's worth sacrificing a little bit of front end file that you feel you can get a little bit of feel back with suspension with a um, uh, with your triple clamps with uh, front wheels that sort of thing there's ways of fixing that so uh, looking very positive KTM uh, the sun's kind of going down on the season as well as us here for people <laughs> watching video we're going to be in the dark in the moment Dave quickly tell us who was your winner uh, my winner is Gigi Delinia because he was hired to win a MotoGP championship and it took him nine seasons and he finally did it and he built an absolutely fantastic motorcycle he's build, been building fantastic motorcycles all year he's revolutionized the sport much to everyone's chagrin um, it is um, uh, you know it's just an absolutely fantastic job he deserved this championship this I mean like Pekka Banyaya the second half of Pekka Banyaya's season has been absolutely outstanding um, but you know Banyaya owes a debt of gratitude to, to Gigi Delinia because he's clearly on the best bike of the grid uh, the, the bike does everything the previous Ducati couldn't do uh, the previous Ducati was a very fast engine uh, and a couple of wheels and some stuff connecting it um, and it was left to uh, Casey Stoner to figure out how to get it around corners uh, the, 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 the this bike is just fantastic just I mean you don't even need to uh, you don't need to look at you know at Banyayo you just like need to look at how many people have been on the front row how many people have been on the podium um, how easily how quickly Marco Bezzecchi got up to speed um, it's a fantastic bike and clearly Gigi Delinia has done a fantastic job could he be tempted to another manufacturer no well uh, no because I mean the reason he moved to Ducati is because he had one two five titles he had 250 titles one thing that was missing was a MotoGP title he's won a MotoGP title now um, there would be no reason to try to, to tempt him and he would never get the same freedom 
uh, as he was off, he was literally offered. I mean, I don't know about a blank check, but he was offered, you know, a, a clean sheet of paper. Do whatever you want. Do what was needed. We need to start winning again. Um, he completely reorganised the race department. He started shifting uh, personnel between uh, t- test team, raid, race team, and, and the racing department, um, or rotating personnel. He completely reorganised it, and that to me was the, the biggest genius. Not so much the, not even the engineering uh, uh, changes, but just the way the He's been able to tap into Ducati creativity to create to build this a fantastic motorcycle. On the eve of the first test of 2023, we're going to go into our losers from the weekend, and fittingly, they're all brands. Me very quickly first, Yamaha. Uh, I think it says a lot that you know, Yamaha issued a press release saying they thanked Fabio Quartararo for all of his efforts. Um, it seemed a, an incredibly formal gesture, a slightly unusual one as well. Um, you know, Franco Morbidelli had. I'm struggling to think of a rider in the pack that had a more disastrous season outside of the rookies. Um, you know, we can talk about Ralph Fernandez or Remy Gardner, but uh, yeah, I mean, Morbidelli from being, you know, a world championship runner up, goodness gracious, what a year. Uh, Yamaha going down to two bikes, of course, next season as well. Um, you cross your fingers that the people in Iwata are, are still passionate and they still believe firmly in MotoGP because we don't want to see them go the way of Suzuki. So Yamaha are my losers from Valencia. Neil, for you. Uh, my loser, apart from Dave, because he's staying to the test tomorrow, um, is uh, Honda um, because they had a, a shocking day. Paul crashed, Mark crashed, Alex Marquez crashed, Takanakagami finished 14th. Results-wise, it was a disaster. Also, just the feeling that I, I, I was confident that Mark was going to do well this weekend. I qualified in the front row with a fantastic lap on Saturday. I had him as my winner, a uh, guy that was going to win the race on, on Sunday. But um, yeah, he just didn't really look capable of that. It sort of looked as though he was hanging on. Obviously, he had the crash, I think, around lap 10 at turn 8. And, um, yeah, like what we're sort of hearing about what Honda is bringing to the test isn't uh, exactly the kind of response that you would expect to the predicament they're in. Um, and I'm not disputing the fact that Mark is the best rider on the grid, um, the most decorated, decorated rider on the grid was by some distance. Um, but, uh, you know, Honda really need to pull the finger out, um, in a big way. I don't think they're going to have a new engine for the test. Um, you know, Mark's been going back and forth from chassis, but keeps ending up on the older, the older version that he was, he's been on all along. It's clear that the, the, aside from the, the swing arm, the, there's not been a great deal of improvement in terms of the hardware that they've brought. Um, and, you know, yeah, we've mentioned this before, but, you know, Ducati are so strong. Uh, there's going to be Bastianini on a factory bike next year. Yamaha should be stronger with Fabio. I mean, they can't just completely rely on Mark um, because, you know, the last two races, I think, have, have underlined just the, the sort of struggles they had. Mark is fantastic at Valencia. He's got a wonderful record there. And um, even he was sort of powerless to fight against um the, the two Ducatis ahead and uh, Rins up front. So, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, Honda need to pull the finger out. Dave, for you, your loser from Valencia. My loser is Aprilia. Uh, we talked about it earlier. Uh, Aleix coming in. Uh, Mario Vinales also came in. He had a problem with the front end. Um, uh, they had a really strong first half of the season, but things really started getting, getting worse and worse during the flyaways. Um Things uh, this race in particular, the fact that Aleish had to pull in with uh, uh, 
a mechanical issue caused simply by problems um, due to you know mechanics doing something wrong. There are serious organizational structural problems inside uh, inside the Aprilia racing team. Um, nothing which can't be fixed. Yeah, uh, I mean, it seems it's, more a subject of experience rather than resources. Perhaps. Yes, yes, exactly. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, for that reason, the the fact that they, um, I mean, it's been a really big learning year, and I hope that they use this experience to learn to improve. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, for me that was very much a uh, the, the a reason for to, to call them the loser of the weekend. Well, as we said, it's been a very long season. Thanks ever so much for listening to the podcast all the way through. Of course, we we're going to continue. We've got content going on. We've still got two rounds of World Superbike. So Steve Gordo and Charlie are going to be bringing their thoughts from Lombok and. Phil- Australia, Philip Island, of course, uh, the visit to the last round there. But we're going to have, as Neil mentioned at the top of the show, some very interesting interviews and rental street sessions coming up for you. We'll probably review the season as well, talk about some individual manufacturers, but the content will keep coming. So please keep continuing to check the channels where you get this podcast and, uh, yeah, listen to us again soon. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.